Very good morning, church. Morning. Today's uh, scripture reading is taken from Joshua chapter 3. We continue with our sermon series on the book of Joshua. Today we come to the third chapter. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Chittim and went to Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move up from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. So Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went on ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exhort you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, Perizzites, Gergashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage at all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the waters flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful passage that we have just read. Holy Spirit, come and reveal wonderful truths from your word. Speak to us, inspire us. More importantly, view us with your Holy Spirit that we may do likewise similar similar miracles of new crossings in our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we see a fascinating Bible passage. Fascinating just because there is a miracle of the crossing of the river, but also fascinating in the way that the instructions were given. Plus, when we juxtapose this account with other biblical accounts, you will see how fascinating God and His Word truly are. So without further ado, let's dive into the text. And the story begins for us at this place called Shittim. In terms of geography, there's nothing fascinating about this place. If you look at the map, it's simply a place 
here. Okay, down here, right? West of the River Jordan. Sorry, east of the River Jordan. But its name is somewhat intriguing. The Hebrew word shiti means acacia, a kind of plant or wood uh, in the region of that world. When Moses was instructed by God to build the tabernacle, the common material used was shiti, acacia wood. That's not unsurprising because that's really the only material that Moses could find in that region. But there is something else to note about shittim, and that this word actually sounds like another Hebrew word which has the meaning of deviation, transgression, turning aside, unfaithfulness. For those of you familiar with Mandarin, it's like the words jianren and jianren. One means, you know, someone who is a a scandalous person and the other a schemer. Although they are clearly two different words, yet there is some overplay, overlap of meaning, and there's a play on the sound of the words. Even in the English, we see the word shitim begins with some vulgar letters. <laughs> shitim, therefore, the Israelites represents a place with somewhat negative connotations. At best, shitim represents what's ordinary, but dead, acacia wood. At its worst, Shittim represents the worst of humanity, our transgressions, our unfaithfulness. Surely, if you were an Israelite, you would be eager to leave this place as soon as possible you want to get out. But they were told to stay there for three days before God allowed them to cross over. Bear in mind these details as I reveal the fuller picture later on. Fast forward now to the end of Joshua chapter 3. As soon as the priest's feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It basically piled up at a great distance away at a city called Adam in the vicinity of Zaratan. Now here's a picture, the next picture, of River Jordan during the flood season. It's usually uh, the waters, the flood waters come because of the snow that has melted from Mount Hermon and so they form this rushing river as you can see in this picture. Any of you who have attempted river crossing in similar conditions, you will know it's actually very difficult to cross a river like that. And imagine you have children with you as well. It's a whole nation having to cross a mighty river. But God is faithful to His Word. As soon as the priest stepped in, the waters stopped flowing and they were piled up in a distance away in a city called Adam, which is about 50 km north of the river crossing point. So you see on the map, on the south, you have that river crossing from Shittim, crossing over to Jericho, and the waters piled up in the area called Adam. Okay? Similar, uh, some well-known uh, fun facts, a similar well-documented landslides uh, took place in 1267, 1909, and 1927, temporarily cutting off the flow of water so that... Uh, you know, this happened in 1927 so that the block, uh, the flow of the water was actually shut down for 21 hours. So this happened several times in history. The point is, God is able to control even the forces of nature for His own purposes. That's very likely what happened in the days of Joshua. The floodwaters came, broke the banks of the river, somehow it piled up earlier instead of later on where the crossing took place. So what can we learn from today's scripture passage? The following three lessons are taken from the CREW website, CREW standing for the former uh, Campus Crusade website. 
It's called the 3G life. The 3G life. Number one, being God attentive. Being God attentive is focused on how we learn to have a lifestyle that is spiritually sensitive to the leading of God in our lives. John chapter 10 describes God as the good shepherd. And his sheep, that's us, hear his voice. So we must be attentive to his voice. Unfortunately, in our world today, we have many voices, especially our handphones, our mobile devices. So the question is, whose voices are we listening to? Are we taking time to be attentive to God's Word and His Holy Spirit? Secondly, we need to be God-dependent. Being God-dependent is focused on how we learn to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Most of us know that passage. But towards the end of the chapter, it reads, Since we live by the Holy Spirit, let us keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That means we must learn to depend on the Holy Spirit every step of our lives. God dependence is about recognizing that without God, we can do nothing. We need to depend on God every step of our lives. Finally, being God-responsive. And that, is, that, is, uh, that means we need to learn how to walk by faith, not by sight. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 teaches us, we walk by faith and not by sight. But the point is, we must walk. We must respond to what God has spoken to us. We cannot stay still where we are. We must obey God and walk. Take that step of faith. If you look at Joshua chapter 3, you'll see all three aspects in play. First of all, the people had to be God-attentive. They had to follow, watch, first of all, the ark, the covenant of God. Where was the ark of the covenant going? They had to be sensitive, attentive to the presence of God. Look at what God is doing first and then join in. Henry Beckerby advocates in his book, Experiencing God. If you want to experience God in your lives, you know this principle. God is always at work around us. God is always at work around us. Find out what God is doing and join in. That's Henry Beckerby's secret about experiencing God. Secondly, the priests had to be God-dependent. They had to trust God to stop the waters. It's a new method. Forty years ago, when they crossed the Red Sea, there was an east wind that blew overnight so that they were able to part uh, the, the wind parted the waters and then they were able to walk through. But today, for them, it's a new method, a new way unknown to them. The priests were told to go and step into the mighty rushing river. Putting, put yourselves in their shoes. Imagine walking towards that mighty rushing river, like that picture that we saw earlier. How would you feel? As you move nearer and nearer, but you see that river still flowing. It's only when they stepped in that God did a miracle. The waters were piled up a distance away. And even uh, when they were standing in the middle of the river Jordan, how would they have felt? Oh God, please don't let the waters come back. Oh God, please, right? They were God-dependent every step of the way. Finally, the people too had to be God-responsive. They had to obey. The people couldn't stay where they were at Shittim. They had to cross over and join God in His work. So at the end of the day, the decisive step we all must take is to respond in obedience. 
we must respond in obedience. God has done everything necessary for life and salvation, but He requires us to put our faith in Him and to obey Him. Do we want to live a victorious Christian life? Then we must seek to live this 3G lifestyle. God attentive, God dependent, and God responsive. Look at where God is at work and join in, trusting in His power to provide. Joshua chapter 3, you know, has occupied a very special place in my heart since 2018. Last year, when I was wondering if I should advocate a return to the practice of the class meeting, because I know that this is where the Lord is leading me, the Lord spoke to me through verse 4. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. It's true, I have never been on this way before, changing the way cell groups meet to embark on the class meeting model. As far as I'm aware, no Methodist pastor has ever taught their congregation about the class meeting. Even though it's actually very Methodist, we lost it over the years, but actually no one in Singapore has taught it. This is certainly a very new crossing for me. And so I'm learning to follow the Lord step by step, trusting God in this new way. So pray for me to be God-attentive, God-dependent, and God-responsive as I pray the same for all of us in Amokyo Methodist Church. Before we bring this sermon to an end, I, want to, I feel it is necessary for all of you to see how this passage, Joshua chapter 3, has been read by many Christians over the centuries. I don't claim any credit for any of these revelations. As I've said, it's something that pastors and scholars have been preaching for many years. And many people have picked up on the parallels between Joshua chapter 3, Jesus, and baptism. Take our United Methodist hymnal, for example. I know this is the contemporary service. We don't use the hymnal. But uh, here I share with you a little trade secret as a pastor. For those of you in the century, you have the hymnals in front of you. You can verify this. If you flip to the back of the United Methodist hymnal, there is a portion where they list the index of Scripture. For example, page 923 lists Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And then the pages in the United Methodist hymnal where Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 are alerted to. And in this case, if you look at the hymnal, it's pages 36, 41, and 51. Normally, they refer to songs and hymns. But in this case, there are no hymns written about Joshua chapter 3. It's a new way to. <laughs> but if you look at pages 36, 41, and 51, you realize it's the baptismal ritual. The baptism ritual actually remembers Joshua with this phrase, the children you brought through the Jordan to the land you promised. So the crossing of River Jordan has always been a symbol of baptism and new life in Christ Jesus. That's how Christians for centuries have understood Joshua chapter 3. It's a symbol of our baptism. The baptism is a symbol of our new life in Christ Jesus. The parallels are clear if you look at it closely. Shittim represents what is ordinary and even sinful. Remember, it represents the worst of humanity, our transgression and our unfaithfulness. And how many days did the Israelites stay in that place? Three days. And how many days did Jesus remain dead because of our sin? Same. Three days. 
what happened next? The waters, we were told, in Joshua chapter 3, were stopped at this place called Adam. But before we talk about Adam and the piling out of the waters, do you know that the meaning of the word Jordan literally means one going down? And it's not difficult to understand why, because geographically, the river Jordan flows from north, which is the high point in Mount Hermon, the base of Mount Hermon, and it flows down, down and down until the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea. And that is why it's called the River Jordan, literally one going down and down, further and further down. And so it really is a symbol of our life as well. Adam reminds you of creation. Adam and Eve were created, right? Life began at Adam, but it starts going down and down and down. Eventually, we reach death, the Dead Sea. But when God does a new work, when God does a miracle, the waters are stopped at Adam. And so the scripture tells us and confirms this, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, stops the curse of the first Adam. Wow. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, stops the curse of the first Adam. The waters of sin and death are piled up. No more flowing down to the dead. Notice also that it is the high priest, you know the priest, who goes first into the waters of death, so-called. And Jesus is our great high priest. Because of what Jesus has done in full obedience to the Father, when Christ steps, as our high priest steps into the waters of death, the waters of sin and death are stopped. Finally, note here, there is a peculiar instruction given in this miracle, and that is, there is a distance of 2,000 cubits to be kept between the people and the ark. Now, 2,000 cubits doesn't mean very much to us. It's probably about 900 meters. But for the Israelites, 2,000 cubits represents what's allowed for a Sabbath day's walk. On a regular Sabbath day, the Israelites were permitted to walk only a maximum of 2,000 cubits. If you think about that, it's not a lot, 900 meters. The Sabbath day, more importantly, if you recall, points towards a holy day. A day set apart, different from the rest of the week. Why? Because God worked for six days and He rested on the seventh day. To keep a distance of the 2,000 cubits then is a reminder to the Israelites that they must observe God's holy pattern. It's not about the strict distance. It's about following God's holy pattern. And that is why the baptismal ritual recalls the crossing of the river Jordan. Baptism symbolizes the crossing over from death to life. And like the Israelites, we must observe God's holy pattern. We must be water baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized, John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. John understood and said, Yes, I agree. So why is it proper for Jesus to be baptized even though he had no sin? Because it is God's holy pattern. 
Jesus has to step into the waters just as Joshua led the people into the waters. And so Jesus has set for us this holy pattern. If you have not been baptized, as we launch our baptism and membership classes uh, second half of this year, and we have heard your feedback, why always on a weekday night? So this year we have brought it to a Saturday afternoon when we launch our baptism membership classes second half of this year. And if you have not yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider signing up. But that's not all the parallel there is. The, spirit, the spiritual significance of the River Jordan also symbolizes a transition of leadership from old to new. And with this transition, it is brought to a higher level. First of all, we had Moses leading the people through the Red Sea, but it is Joshua who leads his generation across the River Jordan. The prophet Elijah, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, he took his cloak, he rolled it up, and he struck the water, River Jordan, and divided into two. He crossed over. But Elisha was with him. Elisha, his prodigy, was with him. When Elijah was caught up into the heavens, Elisha took up that cloak that fell. He came to the same River Jordan, and he asked, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he took that same cloak, struck the water, and it also divided into two. But the thing to note about Elisha is this. Elisha asked for double the portion of anointing of Elijah. And then finally, we have John the Baptist who was baptizing in the River Jordan. And guess who showed up? Jesus. And of course, John the Baptist was only the forerunner pointing to the Son of God himself. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? John the Baptist said to the people there, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist baptizes with water for repentance, and we need to do that. We need to follow Jesus' example. But Jesus brings it to a higher level. He doesn't just go for baptism of water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amokyo Methodist Church, we have just begun our 41st year. We are in a transition of leadership. I don't think it is a coincidence that God has led us to study this book of Joshua. Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist were all great men of God. But it is Joshua who conquered the promised land. It is Elisha who received double the anointing. And it is Jesus, of course, who is the greatest ever. I personally am very grateful, and we should all be very grateful to all the pastors that Amokyo has had for the past 40 years. But I believe we are standing in the threshold of a new era. As Pastor Liam Kai preached last week, the new era of Joshua. If we want the church to grow, we must be ready to embrace a new era. If there's anything I want to say from the bottom of my heart as a pastor, it is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Very easy to remember. 1, 1, 1, 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I seek to be word-saturated, spirit-filled, one who loves the presence of God, one who is after God's heart always. And this is my challenge to all of us. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
I use my mind to diligently study the Word of God, and that's why I learn my Greek and Hebrew. But I also allow the Holy Spirit to play an active role in my life and my ministry. There are many Christians on either side of the spectrum, either so word-centered that they shut down the voice of the Holy Spirit altogether, or they can be so spirit-led that they contravene the Word of God. Both extremes are wrong. We must be both word-saturated and spirit-filled. Above all, we must love to linger in the presence of God, as Joshua did at the tent of meeting. He lingered in the presence of God, and we must seek to please God's heart in all that we do, in all that we do, especially when we are alone and nobody sees. We still seek to please the Lord. And so in accordance to God's holy pattern and seeking to please God and to obey His instructions, I was baptized in water March 21st, 1999. I realized that's just over 20 years ago. Since then, over the past 20 years, I've constantly prayed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to be filled by His Holy Spirit. And I can tell you many times, God has not disappointed. He has encountered me. I'm filled by the Holy Spirit and I know it. Water baptism was for me telling my non-Christian family that I have a new allegiance. I am now a follower of Christ. I am sealed in Christ. I have a new faith. I have a new master. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what gives me power to live that new life. Water baptism is me telling the world, I'm no longer following you, but I need the power, the feeling of the Holy Spirit to enable me to walk in newness of life. I guess most of you have never met me when I was young. But for those who actually have the privilege or the misfortune of knowing me from young, you realize that when I was young, I used to swear a lot, get angry a lot. I was trapped in pornography, lazy, arrogant. Today, because of the Holy Spirit living in me, I bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. My tongue is far less vile, my temper more measured. I'm set free from pornography. And hopefully, I exhibit more humility and hard work rather than pride and sloth. So because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I have a new life. I am enabled to overcome sin. So family, if you want to live a victorious Christian life, these two are not negotiable. Number one, water baptism. Number two, spirit baptism. Jesus himself set the pattern. He was baptized in water, as we have seen earlier. And after that, what does the Bible say? What does the Gospel say? The Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus set the example of both. For us, water baptism symbolizes faith in Christ Jesus, turning away from our shittim, our sin, our unfaithfulness. But as we cross over into the new river, we receive spirit baptism, fire baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we receive that new power, new life. That same power that Bible says that raised Jesus from the dead. And it is that very same Holy Spirit that you see me ministering in prophecy, healing, spiritual leadership, and other spiritual gifts. I'm as ordinary and human as all of you. You cut me, I will bleed, just like you. But it is Christ living in me. The power of the Holy Spirit working through me that anything good can ever come forth. And so I ask you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Water baptism, spirit baptism, these two we must constantly pursue. Water baptism, once for all. One time, 
for all your lifetime, that's good enough. But the Holy Spirit baptism, we ask for it day by day, day by day. We never stop asking for the Holy Spirit. We can never overcome sin by our own will power. We can never overcome our sinful and bad habits by our own strength. We need that divine power. And God freely gives us the divine power through the Holy Spirit. Ask for the feeling of the Holy Spirit daily. I want to close by just talking about three ways we know that we are spirit-baptized. First of all, we know we are spirit-baptized when we have the assurance of salvation, when we know that we are children of God. So, on the flip side, if you have doubts, am I a child of God? If you cannot feel that you are a child of God, then ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. It tells us that we are indeed children of God. John Wesley preached a sermon before on the Romans passage. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. It's internal. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our, Holy, to our spirits that we are children of God. Second, second sign that we are spirit baptized is that we have power and victory over sin. And so if you, on the flip side, are always living a defeated Christian life, ask yourself, why? Perhaps you really need to ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ask for it so that you have the power to walk in newness of life. And finally, a sign that we are spirit-baptized is that we begin to operate in supernatural gifts. There are natural gifts, but there are also supernatural gifts. I don't want to talk about just tongues because I'm not a Pentecostal pastor, but there are many other spiritual supernatural gifts. Healing, working of miracles, prophecy. When we are spirit-baptized, we begin to move in these supernatural gifts, ways that we can never explain by ourselves. How do we know God is speaking to us? How do we live a spirit-led life? All these come, around, come about because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so as we close, I want to give you this opportunity. I invite you to just close your eyes for a moment, both here and in the sanctuary. I'm not going to ask you to stand. But if you desire for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, invite you to just raise your palms up to the sky as a sign that you are asking to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I will say an opening prayer and later on we will cut off the broadcast and I will leave it to Pastor Colin over there and the worship team to minister and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. But let us pray now. God, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ Jesus. That in Christ, we step over from death into new life. What a pre precious privilege. And Father, now we ask for that next wonderful promise and privilege. Let you fill us, Father, with your Holy Spirit. Baptize us afresh today with your Holy Spirit so that we may walk in newness of life, bringing you glory in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.